Now, T.E. Lawrence, commonly known and romanticised as Lawrence of Arabia, an Oxford graduate, was famed for his impact on World War I. His fast-paced, flexible, strategic guerrilla warfare, these tactics were renowned. As he mobilised and organised the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, fighting alongside the central powers of Germany, Bulgaria, um, he helped bring down uh, this branch of the Ottoman Empire. His deep knowledge and understanding and affection um, for the Arab forces he fought alongside enabled him to marshal a force that destroyed communication links, greatly diminishing the war effort of the Ottoman Empire. The then commander-in-chief of the Egyptian expeditionary force, General uh, Sir Edmund Allenby, stated after the war, I gave him a free hand. His cooperation was marked by the utmost loyalty. And I never had anything but praise for the work, which indeed was invaluable throughout the campaign. He was the mainspring of the Arab movement and knew their language, their manners and their mentality. We see here that a man which was empowered to achieve a mission. This mission was given to him by a higher power and the mission was only achieved through his sensitive understanding and communication of ideas with people who are quite different to himself. You see pictures of him dressed in the uh, clothing of the people that he was with. You see him um, on the camels with them. You see him even having picked up uh, and darkening his skin to be more like them. Now, let's just move a couple of hundred miles. Let's rewind 1900 years and let's see that um, a man working for a quite different mission that is recorded in the book of Acts that we've just read. Now, it's important that we get an idea of where we are in Acts so far. Those of you having gone through it will know this. But previously in Acts, we've seen Jesus in chapter 1, verse 8, state, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Since then, that vision has started its journey to being realised. As the gospel has spread like wildfire around the Mediterranean rim, it's gone through Judea, Samaria, and latterly around different parts of the Mediterranean. All this growth has been happening under real oppression. Stephen and James have chosen to be killed rather than deny the fact that Jesus really did die for our sins. Peter has previously been locked up for the same reason. And we will see in due course as we work through Acts that this is not the end of that hard time. Here in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, we see Paul and Silas coming to Lystra and Derby, which would be in the northwest of modern-day Turkey. They have been travelling up from Jerusalem through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches in the faith. You can see this in chapter 16, verse 5. How are they strengthening these churches? Well, they're in a possession of a letter that's been written and signed by the apostles in Jerusalem. Their minds were pregnant with an understanding of what it means to be saved by Jesus Christ. They have been seeing wonderful things and bearing witness to that. 
This very short letter that they're in possession of, not much longer than a text message, was written as a measure to deal with false teaching that had emerged in Judea by people who were peddling a gospel plus. A gospel plus something more. Whereby we see in chapter 15, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, in response to this heresy, which is what it was, um, because of the insinuation that you cannot be washed clean from your sins unless you follow a pick-and-mix observation of the ceremonial law, Peter summarises the thinking of the apostles who were against that teaching. He summarises it in uh, chapter 15, verses 10 to 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Therefore, this letter from the council of elders and apostles in Jerusalem to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, carried by Paul and Silas to the believers in Derby and Lystra, where we are now, is a subtle, nuanced declaration of the freedom for newly converted Gentiles from having to be circumcised. However, alongside that, it does lay out a minimal skeleton of requirements for believers, as can be seen in verse 29 of the previous chapter of chapter 15. Now, it's really important that we do get to grips with what this letter is and the context in which we come to chapter 16. I just want to make that clear now before I go on, because it may seem that I'm preaching from the wrong passage. (laughs) But why have these stipulations in verse 25 in this letter at all? I mean, they're all morally wholesome, but they hardly paint a comprehensive picture of the Christian life. The reason? These requirements are tailored to allow Gentiles to live in a way that does not shock and revolt the Jewish communities living alongside these new Gentile believers. The Jewish people need not have unnecessary barriers in their way to a saving faith. Just in the same way, the Gentiles need the stumbling blocks, like circumcision, removed from their road to understanding that it is Christ's death that cleans us from our sin, not religious exploits, not religious symbolism. Now, it is only in this context that we can understand why Paul has Timothy circumcised in chapter 16. On a surface reading of it, it looks, to use parliamentary speak, that Paul has made an embarrassing climb down by circumcising Timothy. Now we know from verse 2 that Timothy had a decent reputation amongst the believers. We know from 2 Timothy the letter that Paul wrote later on, that he had been brought up, that Timothy had been brought up in a knowledge of the scriptures and more importantly, had a sincere faith of his own. So why seemingly ignore the freedom from circumcision that Paul had previously worked so hard to secure? In Antioch, he'd been knocking people's heads together trying to get them to realise that they had a faith that did not require circumcision. 
What is worth this kind of inconvenience to circumcise a grown man? We know from the Old Testament that examples of adult circumcision left the man feeling extremely sore. So, why did Paul do it? Well, the short answer, to see the church grow. Now, It's evident we must remove the stumbling blocks to unbelievers understanding the message of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some translations of verse 3 in chapter 16 actually put it as out of consideration for the Jews. Now, the Jews without a sincere faith in the work of Jesus were just as lost as the Gentiles were. Now, Let's go back to Timothy. So Timothy's dual parentage gave him an invaluable entree to both Greek and Jewish culture. However, the Jews would have known that he was not circumcised. And as a result, he wasn't one of them. And his words did not hold the same weight as a fellow Jewish believer. Now, however, it is for this reason that Paul and Timothy were willing to make the costly concessions in policy to allow the door to be open for them to communicate the decisions by the apostles and elders that were made in Jerusalem, to communicate that teaching, to disciple, to get alongside and to, and to testify to what they've seen going on under the name of the gospel. Now, how much greater is our mission today, in the light of what we see here, how much greater was the mission of Paul, Silas, Timothy than that of Lawrence of Arabia, which I mentioned earlier? I mean, here and in our life today, we're not talking about uh, transient political power plays or empire building which comes and goes or fading alliances. We're still under the commission that Paul was under then. The commission which comes from the only man who has beaten death. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We as those privileged few who have been brought into God's kingdom and are living here in Oxford. We've been entrusted with a mandate to remove stumbling blocks from those who are lost. Now, just as Lawrence of Arabia knew the Arabs' language, their manners and their mentality, as was lauded earlier. We too must invest in connecting with people who we want to seek saved and thereby remove the stumbling blocks to people hearing that Jesus saves. Now what are those stumbling blocks to people hearing the message that saves? Now, the liberally minded Oxford student may say, I can't take you seriously because you hate gay people. Now, perhaps we need to show them that we don't. How are we going to do that? Perhaps we need to get alongside them and show that actually God sees promiscuity in the same light, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual. Maybe we need to get alongside them and explain to them that God created this wonderful thing. 
What do we say to the homeless people released from prison some time ago who says, God doesn't really deal with people like me, just like you don't deal with people like me. Just the other day, someone walked into church who was weeping because he was feeling such remorse that he'd killed his mother nine years previously. These are the people that we have on our streets. These are the people in Magdalen Road who say, God cannot love me. Well, perhaps we need to get the seat of our trousers dirty and sit on the wall alongside them. Maybe we need to tell them that God does deal with people like them. Or maybe that colleague, mourning a miscarriage, who says, how can God allow suffering like this? Perhaps we need to cry with her, share with her the the gospel that will lead to every tear being wiped from the eyes of those who believe. All these people have stumbling blocks to their taking hold of what Jesus offers. Now, we've been given a mandate to be flexible in the approach and the packaging of the gospel that we present people. To remove the stumbling blocks to their understanding of an honest message of a saving faith. Well, it's from here, uh, in the first part, of Acts 16. But let's move to verses 6 to 10, where we see that Paul and his companions are prevented from entering Asia. We're not told why or the means by which this happened, only that it was the Holy Spirit that kept them from entering. That is key. Again, we're told that their attempts to enter Bithynia and Mysia are thwarted. Interestingly, this is by the Spirit of Jesus. Surely this is contrary to God's plan laid out earlier. Can you imagine at the border checkpoint, the guards standing there, Paul looking pensive, perhaps Timothy had his head in his hands, formerly so filled with enthusiasm for their new mission, now questioning what's going on. These are the people that we're going to be speaking to looking rather dismayed, a little bit melancholy maybe. Now, I don't think that these changes in plans were due to a lack of effort or ambition, but that instead both of those plans to go into Bithynia and to go into Asia were plans that were stopped by God. Because he had a greater plan. Now, the vision of the Macedonian man and subsequent change of destination instead marks a watershed. Now, this obedience to the Spirit's leading means that the Gospel actually ended up entering Europe, Macedonia. Eventually, Europe would mean the great seaports of Corinth and Athens and where the ships would take it further. And eventually it would mean that the gospel got to Rome with the huge implications that that meant. Now, God's plan was to reach more people. So we see that the church grows when we are obedient in approaching those God has given us. God cares about all people. Now, perhaps we have 
a dear friend, we shared our faith with three years ago. We continue to pray and love them, but we see little or no change. Now, I think we should continue in the same vein. Let's continue to love them. Let's continue to pray for them. But not at the expense of ignoring the destiny of that other friend, that colleague, that person you chat to at the school gate or the gym, who to all intents and purposes only sees your faith as something which makes you a nice person, which for you makes you better, which perhaps changes your routine on a Sunday. No. God is totally in control of who you meet and who you go to. The people that you will meet in this week to come has been planned, it's been laid out. And that changes things. It may not be made evident to you where to go in visions and dreams. And it may not be key to reaching a new continent with the gospel. It may be, but it probably won't. But nonetheless, they are, those people are, the people God has given you. So, as we pray for our church and for it to be swelled with new believers, let's pray for hearts that want to remove stumbling blocks to an honest message of saving faith and are obedient in approaching those God has given us.